We're going to continue our study tonight of the, the Bible in seven passages. We're looking at passage number six tonight, this evening rather. Tonight, this evening, whichever is good for you. Um, before, I, before we came over here, I was at work and I was getting ready to leave. And um, I was looking at something on the computer and it, it kind of made me think about the relevance of what we're talking about, these seven passages. I saw a story about a, a, um, an executive in Australia. He was just been hired to be the CEO of a, a football team in Australia on the 27th of September. And when they found out that he was a Christian, the next day he was fired. So that could come here. And, you know, it would be a, a really bad thing if it should come here. Hopefully it won't come here, but... When you look at some of the things that are going on in our country and around the world, it's possible that it could come here real soon. Let's pray real quick. Our most precious, loving Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have once again been so kind and so loving toward us that you allow us to have another day to study your word and to look into your word and to try to fashion our lives after your word. We thank you so much for the many blessings you bestow upon us. We thank you so much, especially for your son, Jesus, who was willing to die on our behalf. Please, Heavenly Father, bless our study tonight. Heaven be, may it be fruitful and be beneficial to those in attendance. This action is Jesus' most loving name. Amen. Okay, so passage number six is uh, Romans chapter six, verses one through 14. The promise revealed. <coughs> I'm sorry. Oh, not yet. So quickly, we're going to go through, uh, not really go through them, but just kind of mention the, the first five passages we've looked at so far. Genesis chapter 1 deals with uh, creation. For we know God, God created the heavens and the earth. Then Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, God's promise to fall on a man after Satan had tempted Eve in the garden. And even after he had, they had fallen, man had fallen, God um, created a plan for them to be redeemed for their, for, their, um, for their sins. Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 7, the personal promise is the historical um, through um, Abraham. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12, the personal promise is a spiritual sign, which is more about, about Jesus. And then lastly, we looked at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, the promise revealed, which was eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So about our passage here, um, it's not actually part of the gospel message. It defends how God's promise to man was realized and how it worked in the, in the believer's life. But before we get into our passage this evening, let's examine why Paul provided this information in the passage we're looking at this evening. This all started with a lie. God's promise for sending a Savior was due to the first act that Eve believed, Satan's first lie. So God has given man instructions concerning the trees of the garden. Man was given free reign to eat of all the trees of the garden but one. And then something happened that changed everything. 
In Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the garden, of the field which the Lord had, God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, Ye shall not eat or touch, lest you die. So we'll stop there for a second. I got a question about this the last part with Eve because I was doing my research and um, there was some question about this last part when, see, when Eve says, lest you die. Um, is that changing what God said when he said, you shall die? Because from my research it was saying, when she said, lest you die, that means you might die. So does anybody have a, any, um, any idea or any comment about that? You shall die. It wasn't a suggestion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my answer. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? So from the research I was doing, it was saying, by her saying, lest you die, it meant that... Um, The problem started right there, or did it start there, or did it start after, after Satan had told her she would not surely die? So did it start then, or did it start when she said, "Lest you die"? Did she was she trying to like change what God said? Any ideas? Any thoughts? I guess I go back when I first read that many years ago. I was thinking more of the physical than the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, lest you die, you shall surely die. He didn't say you're going to drop dead that instant. <laughs> and that seems to be the way Eve was thinking. Look at him. I did. I'm still here. But she wasn't thinking of the separation from God that she had experienced. And they didn't realize that, of course, until God came walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Mm-hmm. Then they realized how much they were separated from him. So, yeah, they did surely die, but not physically, but spiritually. Okay. So after Eve explained to the Satan what God had told them, Satan reply in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Eve was seduced by Satan with the promise of knowledge and equal standing with God. He lied. Now, the equal standing with God, now, that's, that was something that kind of came to my mind, too. Could, could she have ever had equal standing with God? Is that possible at all? No, Eve. Because what he promised them was knowledge and equal standing with God. That's what he would. So was is it possible that 
you could have had equal standing with God. I mean, no. I thought that too. What Satan was really trying to convey to Eve was that God had lied about the tree in the midst of the garden. He also claimed that God did this out of selfishness. He wanted, he, Satan was telling them that God wanted to have all the knowledge and keep Adam and Eve from reaching their full potential. And these are the lies that, that caused Adam and Eve to fall. But in God's judgment of them, in his, he includes a promise that woman's seed, a person born of woman without the participation of man, will terminate the evil one and free mankind from sins. Genesis 3 verse 15 reads, I will put enmity between enmity or animosity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bru- bruise your head and you shall bru- bruise his head. And you shall bruise his heel. So he's talking to Satan. Satan has done grave damage to man and creation, but God's promise has restricted that damage. And the plan to ultimately redeem mankind has been put in action. So Satan concentrates his efforts on delay or destruction of the promise, for he knows completion assures his demise. And that continues today. We see that all day, every day. So. Just know that Satan is still trying. He's going to keep on trying to the end. So, The Jewish nation's history of the Old Testament, their wars, all the setbacks they had to endure, times of glory as well as times of wickedness and descent into idolatry, tell the story of Satan's attempts to destroy the people carrying forth God's promise of salvation that was inevitable. Upon the arrival of the Savior, the lies continued from Satan, from the temptation of the, in the desert to Jesus' death on the cross. Satan was relentless with his attacks. Even on those who believe in Jesus, the evil one knew the resurrection of Christ signaled his failure, but he would not be, desert, he would not be deterred. He even assaulted anyone who believes in Jesus. Shortly after the gospel was preached and the church established, Satan's obstruction and attempt to undermine started again. Here are a few examples of his aggression. The apostles are arrested in Acts chapter 4 and verse, in chapter 5. The killing of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Jewish persecution of the church in Acts chapter 9. Paul's arrest Acts chapter 21 through chapter 27. The Roman persecution of the church, Second Timothy chapter four, verse six. Even though his assaults continued on the church, it grew throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Two point four billion people claim Christianity. Thirty three percent of the world's population are believers. It's estimated that around 245 billion Christians live daily under persecution. This occurs mostly in the Muslim countries. 
the inter interesting thing about these dangerous attacks is it's not on people. Sometimes people are attacked, of course, or the places of worship, but it's mostly concentrated on God's word, which Christians teach and live by. This started way back in the garden when doubt was cast on God's word to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 verses 1b, the serpent asked the woman, did God actually say you would not, you should not eat of any trees of the garden? That's when everything started to go wrong. Throughout Jewish history, the strategy continued. There were false prophets and idolaters taking credit for teaching God's word as though it was from them. But all the time, they were were work on the behalf of working on the behalf of Satan. From Ahab's prophets, Kings chapter First Kings chapter twenty two verses ten through twelve, to the prophets of Baal, Jeremiah chapter two verses eight. There is also evidence of this in the New Testament. For Jesus, Elimus in Acts chapter thirteen verses six through twelve. Some false teachers were able to penetrate the church in an attempt to destroy the from the inside. So Satan figured that if the word of God was destroyed, then that would put a stop to Christianity, Christianity and everything it supports as far as, as far as Satan was concerned. The, the promise is embodied, it's empowered, and fully realized in, the, in and through God's word. Two main attackers of the early church at the, are the Judaizers, false teachers directed mostly at Gentiles, and Gnostics, teachers, teachers false doctrine influenced all believers. The Judaizers taught one had to become a Jew first before becoming a Christian. And as a Christian, one must keep part of the law of Moses. The Gnostics taught that their gospel was superior, and it, if, dis, if disciples followed them, they would be privy to hidden and secret gospel. This gospel had restrictions on food and marriage. Anyone willing to follow these leaders no longer had access to Paul's teaching. In Romans, okay, I'm right now, right here. So, in Romans chapter one, by the way, we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to read the first um, seven verses. And then we're going to go through a little bit, and then we're going to um, read the, um, the, other, the last seven verses after that. So in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, Paul is responding to the two lies circling around the gospel during this critical time of the church's development. Falsehoods that endangered the stability of the church in, the, in its infancy. One threat to change the way of responding to the gospel, and the other attempted to change the gospel itself. So passage, passage number six destroys the attempts to compromise or destroy the gospel content. Peter refers to it as power. Romans chapter one, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the, 
ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Particularly in this section of Romans, Paul is responding to the supposed question about the efficiency of God's grace and one's attitude towards God's mercy. And there's a question. If God's grace ever expands to cover sin at every level of gravity, why not sin all the more in order to cause more of God's grace to be manifested? This is a false argument here, as well as a misunderstanding of how both sin and grace work in real life. The question is not in, the question is not in Romans chapter 6. Let's just suppose this question is, this, this is not really a question that's in the Bible, it's just a question that the, the author made up on, on for the slide. Let's just suppose this question that was asked from the way Paul answers it. And we'll read the first part of uh, Let's read the first part of our passage here. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read it, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall, one, how shall we who died in sin still live in it? Or do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been baptized with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't change my slides. Paul repeat, repeats and rejects the, prom, the premise of the question, more sin produces grace. He points to the response believers make to, to the preaching of the gospel, repentance and baptism. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Peter describes what those who believe in Christ were to do to show their faith, but Paul explains the meaning of what they were to do in response to the gospel. Judaizers' insisted conversions wasn't complete without circumcision. Salvation was attached to the symbols tying a person to, a, to the people who carried the promise forward until Christ came to fulfill the promise. Circumcision was no longer necessary. Paul explains that baptism now expresses a more complete truth received 
a more complete truth could receive activated by faith. In baptism, we receive a blessing realized by the coming of the promise brought into the world by the Jewish people through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Through baptism, a, a believer reacts to, the, to death, reenacts the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ. Baptism is the actual spiritual result that circumcision pointed out but could not accomplish. Sin was the original problem that God sent the promise to fix. All, including Adam, were guilty of sin and eternally separated from God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even if man was aware of the efforts of sin, he could not avoid it. Man would have to overcome a weak spiritual nature in order to overcome sin and completely free himself from sin's power. On top of that, Satan constantly leads the world toward a sinful behavior and hinders every attempt to sincerely be obedient to God. Therefore, the world knew that sin was and the penalties that sin was and the penalties but was unable to eliminate it or make restitution for it. So here's some good news. Paul preached that Jesus offered his perfect sinless life Therefore, his death on the cross and paid the moral debt owed by owed to God we could not pay. Once the debt was paid, meaning the offering of offering was acceptable to God, and this was made known through the resurrection. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the debt was paid in full. Now God had a way to deal with sin that would bestow and that would bestow on imperfect people the gift and privilege to be united with him again. This was made possible by Jesus' cross. Forgiveness received by faith, not by man's restitution. And that was the good news. The forgiveness of sin comes through the waters of baptism. And this is where believing sinners express their faith in Jesus Christ. So I had a question about restitution and repentance. What's the difference between the two and does one lead to the other or vice versa? I mean, does restitution lead to sin? I mean, restitution lead to repentance or does repentance lead to restitution or is that not the case? Can somebody, anybody have an idea about that? Just kind of reading through my notes and everything that kind of came to my mind. 
I thought I would ask that question to see if anybody could kind of help me clarify it in my, clarify it in my mind. Uh, restitution and repentance are very different. Okay. Um, in, re- in repentance, where God uh, forgives sin, all sin, um, say in baptism, for example, um, you don't have to go back and fix everything you messed up. That would be an impossibility, not knowing, number one, everything we've done wrong, uh, and number two, some things are just impossible to, uh, to fix. Uh, restitution would be like a work. I mean, that in order to be forgiveness, or in order to have forgiveness, I must go back and restore all relationships that I broke, tore down, whatever it is that I have done before I can come to God. So then I earn my salvation, and it's not a gift. Okay. That's what she's saying. That's what you said. Repent is the same as change. I don't think so. Is repent and change, that's not the same, is it? (laughs) So repentance is um, easily understood in Second Corinthians chapter um, seven and verse ten, where it is godly sorrow. Right, so godly sorrow it does mean to change, but it's it's changing because of your understanding and conviction, if you will, from the wrongs that you've done. Your heart hurts, and your relationship with the Lord is different. So the Bible says, verse ten, for sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And so one can change, but for the wrong reason, which would not be godly repentance. So like if a man is robbing, he robs stores, and he's been, uh, you know, robbing a chain of stores, and then someone tells him that the police are staking out the next store, and he stops robbing because he doesn't want to get caught. Though he changed, he didn't repent. But godly sorrow means that he stops what he's doing and he does turn around because of his sorrow that's in his heart. Okay. Now God has a way to deal with sin that would bestow on imperfect people the gift and privilege of being reunited, reunited with him again. This was made possible by Jesus' cross. Forgiveness received by faith, not by man's restitution. And that was the good news. The forgiveness of sin comes through the waters of, waters of baptism. And this is where the believers express their faith. I think I read it already. 
So faith is not in expressing circumcision as the Judaizers claim. It's not expressed in perfect obedience as the legalists and the Pharisees professed. It's not expressed in some secret knowledge or loyalty to certain church leaders. This was the Noxic's position. In severe treatment of the, the body, or not if faith was not expressed, in severe treat, treatment of the body, rejecting marriage and making vows as the ascetics promoted then and now. Since Pentecostal Sunday, when, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, faith in Jesus Christ is the basis of our salvation. And it consists of forgiveness of sins in order that we may be acceptable and thus able to come before God. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so we can live a faithful life in this world and after death be united with the Father and Jesus for eternity. So the first seven verses of this passage were teaching and responding to the efforts to change the gospel in, in any way. God's promise, as explained by Paul, was carried by the Jewish nation, fulfilled and realized by Jesus, and proclaimed by the apostles. He also taught how those who understood and believed the gospel message what to respond. So the next seven, the next seven verses answer the question about sin and grace. In verses eight through fourteen, Paul describes the tale of the gospel and grace in the believer's life. It, grace, is not a free spiritual pass to enable us to indulge in sin with no guilt or consequences. going to read verses 8 through 14 and then we'll go from there. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died, for, died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to, Christ, to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go, at, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members are your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul summarizes the entire passage in verse 14 by saying, Christians are not under the law. We are not judged by the law. We are not motivated or affected by the law either. The law's purpose was to reveal sin and the punishment due for, due for sin. 
in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law came knowledge of sin. Christians have been forgiven for all sins and consequently will not face condemnation nor punishment. In Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Being under grace, we are affected and empowered by grace. I'm sorry, I got behind again. So being under grace, we are affected and empowered by grace. The effects of grace, it is God's grace that moved him to make and to send the promise, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, of a salvation based on faith instead of the law, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, moves God to bless us in this life with physical as well as blessings in the heavenly realms. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Some saw grace as something to be explored for personal gratification, but Paul explains the opposite. It's true. We are empowered by grace. We walk in a new, we walk in a new way. Okay break free from the grips of being a slave to sin, naturally drawn to God rather than sin, offer ourselves willingly to God's worship and ministry. They're freely protected and motivated by God's grace rather than freely guilty and dreading death and judgment. I guess and here's a summary of what, we just, what we're just going through. Throughout history, human misery has largely been caused by three lies Satan from, from Satan. Lie number one, God is a liar. Believing this broke the union between man and God. Lie number two, Satan is God. This lie perpetrated man's focus on himself and what Satan controls in the world. This lie perpetuates the darkness wherever it is is believed. And light number three, Jesus is not God. Whether it is outright dis- rejection of Jesus as God or the undermining of his word, this lie is constantly mutating and altering its, altering its form and its sources. Sometimes atheist college professors, sometimes clergymen, 
sometimes politicians. The end goal is always the same, to deny Jesus his rightful position as a divine son of God, man-made with all authority in heaven and earth, and to discredit and, and, tr- and change the promise made to mankind by God by altering his word and giving it a different meaning. No matter how one summarizes the Bible, seven passages or 700 passages, this end result should always be the same. God the Father sent his divine son to take on human body in order to offer his life and death as a payment for the sins of mankind. Those who believe that Jesus is the son of God and express their faith and repentance and baptism will be forgiven. They will receive the Holy Spirit and will have the guarantee of eternal life. We should note that Satan's plan of attack is simple. If you destroy the message, you can destroy the church. And that is it. Any comments? Okay, so that is our, that is Pastor Demers. Oh, we got one. I guess I would take, sorry, slight issue with that statement. I don't think it's true. Okay. Because who's the head of the church? Right. Jesus. Right, right. We're not going to destroy Jesus. They already tried that. And they failed. <laughs> so that's why he's alive and well today. And it says we're living with him. Right now. So it doesn't matter if the message is destroyed. It's we're assuming the whole premise of this class that you can destroy the message. But you can't destroy the word when the word is alive and active. Okay. And the word is Christ. It's not letters on a page. It's something that's living and breathing and active and working in the world and the spirit is moving. And things are changing. You can't destroy that. So I know we, we're never going to be able to destroy, destroy Christ, but in this lesson I think he's saying that's what Satan's attempt is to destroy. So it's not saying that, no, he, we know he's never going to destroy it, but he's saying that Satan believes that if you destroy the message, you can destroy the church. But he's never going to be able to do that. Yeah. And he can't do it. He keeps failing. <laughs> Which is good. want to go back to uh, Genesis 3. Satan never said they will, be li- they will be equal to God. Satan never said they will be God. He said be like God. And as you look in the lesson, what you find is that they knew good, but once they knew evil, then they were like God and that they knew good and evil. But again, he never said, you will be God, you will be equal to God, or anything like that. And I guess I might say that 
Eve didn't have such a high expectation of anything. She was set up for being like him. And, and like we strive to be like Christ Jesus. We would never be Christ. But we strive to be like Christ. And, and that's the key there. Okay. Any more comments? Thank you all so much for your kind attention. Um, This is a learning process for me, so thank you for the comments and for the input you gave me.